Media. Today I'm chatting with Carl Lemoyne, who's a professor at uh, your institute, Carl? University of Oslo, Department of Economics. But I have at the center called ESOP. It stands for Equality Social Performance. Yeah. So I knew the short form, I couldn't remember the, the longer one. Tale, thank you very much for... Uh, I'm happy to be here. So let me start with, uh, you know, some of the recent political events which have happened all over the world, culminating in the election of Donald Trump, but that's sort of part of a movement, it seems, which is happening in the richer uh, industrialized nations. We had Brexit, we had Marine Le Pen gathering a lot of votes. So there are sort of two views on this that people express. One is that it is an identity-based backlash that many countries have had immigration, so it's a backlash against that. Mm-hmm. The other view is that due to globalization or other trends, there has been a rising inequality, and so political platforms which appeal to protectionism, to sort of more inward-looking policies, that's the appeal for Trump and others. So, so where do you stand on this? I think I, I'm, I'm very much in line with those who emphasize the role of inequality. And I think it matters in at least two ways. One way it matters is that countries that are very open to international competition, like the small European countries, uh, I come from one of them, Norway, we don't have much of a populist backlash, so far at least. Still, the welfare state is very popular. The reason is that the welfare state compensate somewhat for the they compensate the losers from globalization. That means that we can get the gains of a global economy shared in the population because of the welfare state arrangement. More of that, we have also strong unions and that also compensate those who otherwise would have been losers. And you see the difference in countries where that have a strong welfare state and redistributive institutions, then international trade is not a problem in, in surveys. While it is, more than double the share of, of voters in the US think that globalization is a problem for them than in Norway, where there's much lower faction, half of the one in the US. But Norway is a country exposed to global forces, while the US, I would say, is a, is a large closed economy. Okay, so you mentioned the welfare state, and uh, you know, if you look back on the last 50 years or so of world history, there have been competing models, right? There's a laissez-faire free market model, and then we had the socialist communist model, but then that got kind of discredited after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then the Scandinavian model has been a very uh, sort of attractive one as a template, as as an ideal for uh, social democrats and, and people on the left. So one way in which, you know, politics is formulated by the Democrats or the Labour Party mm-hmm. in England is that that's where we want to go. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the, given the forces of inequality which has played out in the last 40 years, in the US for example, that adopting the Scandinavian model will solve the problems or do you have to go beyond that? The honest uh, answer is that I don't quite know. So this is speculations. First of all, I would say that no country can imitate another country. I think they can learn from it, but, but learning is not the same as imitation. So I think they can be inspired by it, but they have to find their own way that fits with the tradition, the history, the institutions that the country has. For example, you, you had proposals in the US that were very much like sort of the, the Danish experience uh, was sort of emphasized in the election primaries. And, and I, I'm not quite sure how well that would fit, but there's some things that would fit for the US. For example, that you have universal health 
insurance to everybody, that you have some universalistic spending that goes to everybody of the welfare state. These arrangements in, in Northern Europe are so popular that we, we don't have a single party in Norwegian political competition that doesn't favor the welfare state. I think it's impossible to win an election in Northern Europe without favoring at least some basic aspects of, of the welfare state. So these things are important learning points for other countries that once you introduce them, you get used to this way of, uh, of having collective rationality then they become much more popular, but you can't target specific groups because if you, if not everybody are in the same redistributed boat, so to speak, then uh, you will, the targeted group will be very easily you will find something strange with that group. Uh, so you, you must have uh, making the the targeted program less popular. So I think you have to have rather gross uh, redistribution schemes. But I think one reason why inequality is so bad for redistributive policies. I think it works that way as well. That is that when you have huge inequality, then you also have the principle that those who have the goal get the rule, and those who get the rule get the goal. So you have affirmative policies that confirm the unfair distribution in society in the sense of giving a lot to the few, giving a lot to the one top percent. And when you, you do that, you have institution arrangement in society that do that, you also give them much more political power. So they just reinforce that in the policies. And you see that in the policies that suggested by Trump, no? It's basically tax reform, giving tax uh, reductions to the top 1%, his good friends, uh, claiming that this is the, the best for the the rest of the population, which I think it is not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking at Trump and Brexit and other, other politicians like that, it seems to me that there's sort of, there's a backlash against all this rising inequality, but there are sort of two broad solutions, you know, which are out there. One is that because this is arising from, you know, uh, more integrated globalized economies, to shut it down, right? Yeah. Protectionism and so yeah. on. And, and to protect the wages of the workers, jobs, jobs and wages that way. So that seems to be part of you know, what, what Trump offered. The other is to sort of allow these forces of globalization and free trade because they increase the size of the pie, but have strong redistribution through a welfare state kind of model. But voters seem to be rejecting the latter. They seem to be kind of enamored with the former. Yeah, in, in some countries. So at the same, let me move way back, back to the 1930s. So the, the, the 1929 world crisis, that was just as if you had much more global competition. It was much more difficult to sell on international markets and, and you have to have layoffs, great unemployment and things like that. There were two different reactions to that. Most countries became more authoritarian, more inward-looking, more protectionist, uh, more reactionary in a social sense. That was true for all the fascists, the countries that became fascist, Italy, Spain, uh, Portugal, uh, Germany, Austria. But it was also true for Latin American countries. Many of these uh, countries became very involved after the crisis. But some small countries in Western Europe, they had social reforms. They had reactions to this pressure from international competition that said we had to find a way of sharing things inside the country because we are exposed to these hard global forces. 
So these countries reacted in the opposite direction. They've been more overlooking. They have become more redistributive. They created institutions uh, like the welfare state. They created institutions like coordinated grade setting. So these countries that today has the highest taxes, the most protected workers, have the most uh, comprehensive welfare state, have the strongest labor unions. They have the highest growth from 1930 till today and have exposed the most for uh, international competition. So I would say that here there is a complementarity between sensible redistributed policies in the country and good social insurance inside the country, cooperation in that sense and being very competitive outside in the global market. And the economic growth in Sweden and Norway per capita, even excluding oil uh, in Norway, has been higher in these two countries uh, from the 1930s than in the US. I think that's a lesson worth learning. So, so it seems like we are back in the 1930s, that these nations are sort of, there's these two parts which are diverging. Yeah, and, a little bit. Uh, a little bit are two different reactions to, uh, right. to the global crisis. And you see, the sort of populism is associated with high inequality in the sense that you're going to have politicians like Trump. They're going to, he's going to get the support from poor voters. And voters know that there's a lot of uh, political corruption in the US. So he's going to demonstrate that I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. But of course he is. So he's going to make these voters vote for him and support him for a long time, even though we're going to have a policy that's just in the opposite direction that, that they, their interests would dictate. This is, and this is the, the strong words, the simplicity of all solutions. It comes as a natural consequence that you have to mobilize voters of a different interest that he is actually pursuing. And that means that he has to be, you know, use strong, fake words in order to mobilize these voters. And that's why the, the policies sound so crazy in the eyes of outsiders, us, that he pretend that he is in favor of, of the bottom 25%, when he is basically in favor of the top 0.25%. So is there a lesson from that earlier period, you know, the 1930s, uh, or for, let's say, the US, about how to take a path that us? Sweden or Norway followed, mm. rather than the one with Germany or Austria. Yeah. You know, what, what can they do? I, see, first of all, we can recognize the differences that we had across countries that led to fascism in some countries and in social policies in other countries. I think there were many unresolved issues in many European countries, for example, land issues. Italy had a discussion about land reform. Spain had a discussion about land reform. There was some, some things that made it very difficult to mobilize people of the bottom half to have common interests because they didn't have so much common interest because there were some unresolved, say, land issues. There can be other issues as well. So that means that the lesson is that those countries that succeeded in having progressive social policies they had been able to, to resolve some of these more basic problems. And when the new problems come, it didn't add on the conflicts that were already there and created chaos and that gave the rise of fascism and a Nazi movement. It, it gave rise to some more sort of rural, urban areas going hand in hand in having social protection, but not protectionism. So this is protection without protectionism, protecting citizens but not protecting the economy. And by protecting the citizens to share the gains 
of being competitive. So this is why uh, you can be very capitalist if you redistribute enough of the gains. So perhaps the race issue, the unresolved race issue in America is that very be typical. Because uh, typical welfare issue. programs are often portrayed yeah. as, you know, handouts it's, for... It's for a very good example. And religious conflicts in uh, whatever country. Yeah. Yeah. And you have all these divides. If, if they are there, I think it's very important to try to resolve them as quickly as possible because otherwise they will be magnified into economic cleavages and, and stupid policies like in the US, no? So let me come to the issue of solutions, uh, sort of what can be done to arrest this trend towards inequality, actual policies. So in this context, there's a lot of discussion these days about universal basic income. Yeah. And even Devraj, you have uh, sort of contributed to that by talking about uh, linking the entitlements to a share of GDP, equality, yeah. universal basic Same. share. Yeah. So could you... Uh, yeah. sort of... The first of all, I would say that this is, in essence an imitation, but in very different form from what we have already in the Nordic countries, and particularly in Sweden and Norway, where you have a sharing arrangement in the sense that the welfare states share, give people a share in the gains. Something is provided in kind, something is provided in cash, something is provided through social insurance, something is provided by paid schooling for everybody, including higher education and, and subsidized loan for higher education. In many ways it is sharing. And you have unions that share in the benefits of the firms. So it is an imitation in that, in the sense that you give to everybody a share of the GDP in the country. That is the sharing aspect. And how you can think about this as being divided equally on all the citizens in, in the country, all the grown-up citizens in the country. And there seems to be, at least what we have summed up, a very good experiences by arrangements that are somewhat similar to this, in the sense that you give cohesion to society, that you, you cannot benefit more from coordination, you benefit no more from having less of conflict, you benefit no more of being competitive in the world market, structural change, modernization, everybody gets a gain of that as to the extent that these gains sum up in a larger GDP per capita. And they also give incentives for creating social organizations, because social organizations can benefit from the good policies that they've installed and to counteract policies that are just to the benefit for the few, that doesn't raise the overall performance of the economy, raising namely then the, what comes as a share of benefits to everybody. So I think that is, that is one important aspect of, of this, is that it is leading to a better performance at the same time as you are redistributing the gains, and you are getting a better performance simply because you are redistributing some of the gains, making more collective action, more collective rationality in the economy. This is one aspect. There's also a normative aspect that more and more of the income in society is, for a good society, I would claim, is generated by the lack of corruption, the presence of trust, the learning of each other, uh, that we are standing on the shoulders of those who were better educated than us when we were young. We can have all these learning, all these, these collective gains in society. They sum up to huge rent in any society. But these rents, the absence of conflict, for example, that's a huge gain in, in, in any society. The generalized peace dividend, if you like. This generalized peace dividend 
doesn't shouldn't belong to those who own the capital. Shouldn't be owned to those who own the robots. Uh, this should be equally shared to everybody because we can't claim individual property rights to something that is basically trust created or created by the lack of or the, the happy absence of a conflict. Mm. And it's also new technological change, for example, new robots. Those who control the robots, those who own the robots will, will rule the future. This is one way where we, everybody can get a share of property right implicitly without doing too much of changing private ownership. But we just get the share of the total benefits to society that this creates as measured by the GDP. Mm -hmm. so, so if I understand you correctly, there are sort of uh, two aspects to this. One is that, of course, there's, you know, for whatever reason, the sub redistribution is deemed desirable right yeah. now, so that gets done. But you're saying that by sort of institutionalizing the, the share for every citizen, the preferences and interests of citizens become more aligned. Yeah. Everybody gets yeah. a stake in the progress yeah. of the country, everybody, whichever way it comes about. Whether yes, that's very good, very, very good phrasing. So everybody becomes a little bit of a capitalist, a little bit of right. a worker, a little bit of a, of a person working in agriculture. Right. And, and she will internalize these interests. Mm -hmm. and, and that is what a good society is, mm -hmm. where you sort of have more of a common good created mm -hmm. by the way we are remunerated. And that creates, I would say, collective rationality, which, which is what is lacking in so many countries these days. Mm -hmm. So th that brings me to, I think, an uh, important question, which is, of course, there's this issue of funding, right? Yeah. So if you want to create something like, you know, 5% of GDP or 10% yeah. of GDP, that's a, that's a lot of uh, funding that is required. Is. And presumably it has to be basically uh, taxes on capital. So there are economic impediments to that, you know, incentive effects may dampen investment and so on. There are political potential pushback, uh, you know, from the from the owners of capital. So I want your views on the economic and political feasibility of this. And also, like in you know, connecting to what you just said, end of the last answer. To some extent, this is in the interest of capitalists too to, yeah. to create some share. Do you think this? would be widely understood or shared? Is there a, uh, do we need more enlightened capitalists? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I so Sweden, our neighboring country, they had a really enlightened capitalist class. Uh, they understood that they also gained from uh, a more efficient economy. And an efficient economy was created by compressing unnecessary differentials across individuals, in particular in the labor market. They understood that taking the wages out of out of competition and sort of deciding more on a collective basis on that, that that was a gain for them as well. But you said financing issue. Of course, this is a challenge. It is a real challenge. Let me first make a very polemical observation that when it comes to defense expenditures, we never discuss the cost of them in the same way as we discuss the cost of social programs. When it comes to social programs, then we always have to say the cost of taxation. When it comes to military spending, it's just as if it is for free. I think that there may be gains for both. There can be gains from having a, a reasonable defense in the economy, and there can be huge gains also from having a good social policy. And I think we should also discuss tax policies to fund different programs, whether they are military or social, in a similar manner. And that means that you treat equals by equals. So I think if you're going to redistribute 10% of the GDP, maybe you have to tax 10% of the, of the GDP as well. This is 
a high fraction in, in income tax, in particular for a country like uh, India. So here we have to think about other sources of, of taxation. But the basic normative principle is that I think it creates more of a common income, like these trust-based things that coordination gains and so on, over time. So it's, like, it's more than covering it, the cost of financing it. And that is the experience of I think the Northern European countries, that when we had much higher taxes than, uh, than other countries, in particular in the globe, but also in Europe, we had higher taxes than the average European countries. Nevertheless, had higher growth and better economic performance. We became, we were the poorest country in Europe in 1900. After we expanded the welfare state and made a redistributive programs, after a while, we became the richest country in, in Europe, even when you exclude oil. And, and, and Sweden similarly. So I think the, there are some lessons to be learned from this that they be are obsessed by the cost side. The cost side has to be seen in connection with the, with the gain side. And for all such programs, the costs are visible, but the gains are very often invisible. Because the, you can't, the gains emerges over time. They are the, the absence of certain things that would have happened if, yeah. if you didn't have the program. So that means that you can't see that, but you see right. the cost side all the time. Right. So we have so easily that we exaggerate the political economy or redistribution is visible cost, mm. invisible gains. And that is a very difficult thing to... Uh, that's why we need enlightenment on, on many of these issues, not only for the capitalist class, mm. but, but for all of us. And we have to rethink that some taxes are just taking money that are created by common effort, by trust, by having good institutions, we are taking them and distributing them more equally. They are not money taken away from somebody who had the incentives to create this money. We are overemphasizing, we have a, uh, I call it a merit primacy effect, mm -hmm. that we, we think always we have to reward those with a visible merit in society. If you are very able, you're going to give them a lot. If you are a capitalist and have incentives to, to invest, you have to give you a lot. I think you have to give them some, but maybe we are overcompensating. We are also giving them things that are created by all of us, that belong to all of us, and therefore can be taxed without much cost. On the contrary, when we tax it and we distribute it, we can make more of this trust-based rents in society that I think is so important. Mm. So, so, so that probably underscores the importance of leadership, political leadership, yeah. something like I FDR, th I think who can articulate these things and make yeah, them visible, visible. Yeah, if you I, think, I, I think that is very important. Right. You see, we, we study political party programs in all OECD countries, and there's a very clear connection between positive mention of redistribution, welfare state arrangement, equality, and the actual performance of these countries. So there seems to be a, a link between what is visible in the political discussion between political parties and what is actually performed. So it is a positive mention of all these things that are very correlated with equality, with social insurance. Let me come to my final question, and yeah. this is from the perspective of a country like India, you know, the developing world. Yeah. Now, I don't know your views. I guess you'll agree with me that you know things like globalization have created uh, the flip side of it is that you know in the growth of China, the growth of India, yeah. world manufacturing migrated to China, raising yeah. wages, you know, forces like that. 
uh, and also in kind of surveys, opinion polls, you know, support for globalization and things like that is, is much more higher in, in the developing world. But right now, given this kind of political bent that we see in Europe, in America, what are the prospects for India and China and countries like this? I mean, should it's if somebody came from India and they have been in India for a week, they've been in Norway, came from India and been in Norway for a week, and then uh, they were asked, uh, "What is the prospect for Norway?" That person would most likely say something stupid, and I'm afraid I will say something stupid about India as well. Yeah. I'm, no, I'm, I'm asking I'm you. Optimistic. For, yeah. I'm optimistic. I'm actually optimistic in in the sense that. Is as long as there can be more pressure on sort of more collective solutions to mix sort of collective intervention with capitalist dynamics, I think is a very good recipe. There are more markets in India now. It's more overlooking. Growth is catching up somewhat. I think it's varying a little bit, but uh, there are some optimistic tones on that. And then it is. I think it's very important not to think that we're going to postpone redistribution because if somebody going to get everybody going to get rich somebody is going to get rich first because then you create maybe a new elite that will sort of fight for the privileges that they benefited through the rise of their richness and they will sort of they will probably preserve the privileges that they had so i think to combine to combine the growth you have with more social policies, better health policies, better insurance, insurance just to just to have pension. I think it's very important that people that people get. It is a burden for many families that they have older members in the family. So this burden should be shared more equally in in society. That you have some sort of pension schemes for old people. This was the way it was taught in in uh, in the northern European context. We are not ideal. We have many unsolved issues as well. But we had some of these things we got right, and we had this change from the rural area. People moved in the 1930s and 40s into the 50s, into the rural, into the urban area, and they had, they demanded these institutions that they, to some extent, had on a, on a improvised manner or voluntarily small group based on the countryside. And when they extended this in the urban area, then they created the welfare state. So this was a huge demand created by political competition and economic competition from outside. And, and all parties, competed in, in satisfying this uh, demand after a while. And that's a good thing that you, people should, should not think that there are certain parties, they are against the welfare state, there are certain parties that are favorite. Once you get it growing, you have to compete in order to serve it in a good way. And there should be, there should be trimmed now and then all these arrangements, but not to wait with redistribution. And I think there are so many people talking about these things in India, at least those I meet, that mm -hmm. I'm optimistic. Okay, thank you very much, Kalle. This was an engrossing discussion, and I'm sure these issues will persist. So, this is a conversation that will continue. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.